All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes the newsletter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We have some uh, special introductory offers that we uh, make available to first-time subscribers, people who have not tried. We, We want you to try these subscriptions to see if they are for you. Uh, and so to uh, make that um, uh, more appealing to you, we provide a lower-priced uh, introductory subscription, and you can call Claudio Bossi in our New York office at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. Or you can go to our website at miningstocks.com, Mining stocks.com to learn more about these publications and a lot of other information that is provided there at that website and related ones. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. Uh, you have made this the top show on the Voice America Business Channel, uh, so we're very grateful to you for that. We're also very grateful to our sponsors for making this show uh, financially viable, and this week we have a new sponsor for the remainder of this summer season. Uh, a new sponsor is Athabasca Uranium, so thank you, Athabasca. And the other sponsors for the first hour of this show, who are uh, those companies, are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Golden Minerals, Clifton Star, Silvercrest, uh, and Duncan Park Holdings, and Swiss America. Well, gold mining is, I believe, in the bull market of a lifetime, and I've been telling you why I think that is true. It has to do with the real price of gold, what an ounce of gold will buy. So I am very pleased to have all of these gold mining company sponsors for this show because I think that they are uh, providing ideas of investments that can do very, very well for you 
in the future. And I must say that most of my gold share portfolio is in gold shares. Uh, most of my portfolio, my investment portfolio personally, is in, are in gold shares. So I just wanted to pass that on to you to know that, uh, that I am putting my money where my mouth is. We have uh, CEOs of uh, sponsors to this company then are allowed to come on and tell their stories to you. And so today I'm very pleased to have with me Peter Tagliamonte. He is the president and CEO of Sullivan Gold Corporation. That's a new and exciting gold mining company in Peru that is moving towards low-cost gold production, and they're targeting a 2012 startup date. Production levels of upwards to 150,000 ounces at a relatively low cost. So Peter will tell more, tell you more about what the thinking is there. Uh, they are now about to start a bankable feasibility study. So uh, we'll ask Peter about that when we talk to him uh, in uh, just a few minutes. As soon as we get back from the uh, from the initial commercial break here, after we talk to Peter, we are going to have our special guest this week. Uh, two uh, men that have been on this show before, Daniel Estulin and Adrian Salbucci. Both uh, will be on together today, uh, Daniel from Spain and Adrian from Argentina. Daniel is considered the premier authority on the Bilderberg Group, and this is a group that many think really are the powers behind the throne, the people that really tell Bernanke and Obama and all the other world leaders what policies they must orchestrate and implement. So uh, Salbucci and Estlin will be with us, and then after that, uh, they'll be with us then the first half of the second hour as well. Uh, towards the end of our show today, I'm going to have Ian Foreman. He's the president of a favorite penny gold mining stock, and one I must say that I have in my portfolio. Uh, I think it's a very speculative stock, but I think one that's selling at $0.06 cents a share right now has the potential to be a 10-bagger very easily with some success on the exploration front. And Ian has some very exciting news to share with you today, so I'm looking forward to hearing what Ian has to say. That will be at about uh, 3.30, or I should say 4.30 Eastern time. So I hope that you'll stick around to hear what Ian has to say. And then finally, in the last segment of today's show, I'm going to be talking to uh, Roger Wiegand, uh, my partner, uh, and Chen Lin will not be with us, but Chen has passed on some of the ideas he has and his views right now uh, in terms of how to invest uh, in this market. Well, the equity markets today uh, seem to be slowing down a bit, sort of a break-even uh, point. And actually, in talking to um, Roger earlier today, uh, Roger sort of feels, as does Dr. Robert McHugh, that we are very near a peak here. Uh, for the B wave up. Now, we had that major decline in the equity markets uh, that went down to March of 2009, uh, took us way down there after the Lehman Brothers uh, decline, and then we've had a natural bounce back. Is this bounce back for real? Are we going to be onward and upwards to much higher, uh, much, much higher prices and back to um, prosperity in the global economy? Well, I'm not buying that one. Of course, that's what the mainstream wants you to believe, but, uh, folks, I'm not buying it. What I think we have to do is keep our eyes on what is really going on, and that's why we have the likes of Salbucci uh, and uh, Daniel Estulin with us and many other guests on this show from week to week. Uh, so we want to find out what's really going on, not what the propaganda would have you believe is going on in order to manipulate you, because if we can really figure out what's going on, then we have a much better chance of making money. Now, coming up next with us, and we're going to try to find out what's really going on with solid and gold, is Peter Tagliamonte. He's going to be with me in just a few minutes as soon as the commercial break is over. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Tagliamonte.
comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by dasha capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk rare earth elements are used in many industries from aerospace and automotive to high tech and green tech dasha capital is listed on the tsx.v in toronto under the symbol dac and on the otcqx in the u.s under symbol dchaf please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more that's d-a-c-h-a-capital.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very pleased to have with me Peter Tagliamonte. Peter is the president and CEO of Solid and Gold Corporation. Solid and Gold Corporation is a relatively, well, it's a, it's a name that's somewhat unknown to me. I've heard of it already, but I haven't really learned too much about it, so we're happy to have Peter here. 
to inform me more about it and, more importantly, to let you, uh, all of you out there in listener land, learn more about Solid and Gold Corporation. It is traded on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol SUE, trades on the over-the-counter market in the U.S. under SDDF. There's approximately 156 million shares outstanding, uh, 204 million fully diluted, Recent share price, $0.64 cents Canadian, around $0.62 cents U.S. So that gives it a market cap of just under $100 million. Uh, Peter uh, Tagliamonte uh, is with me today, and Peter is a professional mining engineer. He also holds an MBA from Richard Ivey School of Business at the University of Western Ontario. He is the former president and CEO of Central Sun Mining, Inc., and the chief operating officer of Desert Sun Mining Corp., where he was responsible for the development of the Jacopone Jacobina Mine in Brazil into a 4,200-ton-per-day mining operation. Mr. Tagliamonte has over 25 years of managerial experience building and operating mines worldwide, notably in Central America and South America. In 2005, he received the Mining Journal's Mining Mine Manager of the Year Award in recognition for his work in the mining sector. Welcome, Peter, to turning hard times into good times. Well, thank you, Jay, and thank you for the introduction. Well, it's really good to have you with us. We like to have people that have had a successful track record. Uh, you know, that's always better to, to bet on successful jockeys, I think, and you certainly have had one. Now, with Sullivan, you have a very interesting project. As I understand, it's an open pit mining project that's not that far from production. Could you tell our listeners about it? Uh, well, yes, Jay. Um, Sullivan is a, a gold-focused company. Our principal asset is the Shawindo property, and uh, Shawindo, the property of Shawindo is, is located in northern Peru. It's in a very strong mining district. It's uh, one of the most prolific uh, mining belts in the world. Uh, we're about 80 kilometers from Newmont's uh, Yanacocha mine. This is a, a gold open pit gold mine that does about 1.8 million ounces of gold per year, mm. and we're about 28 kilometers from Barracks. Lagunas Norte mine, which is a low-grade open pit, which does about 1.2 million ounces. So we're right uh, in between those two major properties. Uh, and as you mentioned, Shawindo is a, a fantastic property. It's really on the cusp of uh, developing into something that we feel is going to be uh, very big and very positive. Uh, it's going to be a low-strip open pit uh, mining operation. Uh, it's going to be heap leach. Uh, with the gold being processed after the heat leach in an ADR plant, uh, very low cost, and um, we're really excited about it. Well, Peter, I know you've done some preliminary economic studies on this uh, project, and it's actually in a full bankable feasibility study stage right now. Uh, so obviously that will be a higher level of confidence when that study is complete, but you d have done some preliminary economic studies in the past on this project. Can you give our listeners some sense of the economics? You mentioned you have a low strip ratio. Um, I can imagine it would be fairly low mining cost then, but can you give our listeners some sense of, of grades and, and uh, cost of production, or is, it, or is it just too early to do that? Uh, no, Jay, we can certainly do that. Um, when I became president of Sullivan, I really had, had two objectives uh, that I wanted to achieve. First of all, uh, I wanted to see if the resources that the company currently had were economic. Uh, so to do that, we, we contracted an engineering fir firm, an international firm called AMEC, to do an economic assessment of the property. And the second objective I had is to really see if, with exploration, this property could, could grow. And... 
uh, we immediately filed for a Category 1 permit for exploration, and that really is a, you know, it's a relatively uh, easy permit to get, but it's a, it, only, it limits you to the amount of drilling that you can do. So we could only do about 5,000 meters on the property. So the two things that we did is we did an economic assessment with AMEC, and we initiated uh, a drilling program on the property. Uh, to answer your question, the economic assessment that was done by AMEC, that was completed in December of last year. So it's a, it's a recent study. And it showed uh, a mine production of 105,000 ounces of gold at a cash cost of $403. Hmm. Uh, but I want to emphasize that was a snapshot in time. Mm-hmm. In conjunction with that, we did uh, 5,000 meters of drilling. That's the only thing we could do with the permit that we had at hand. Um, and that drilling was, again, extremely positive, Jay. Out of the 52 holes that we were able to drill, um, 51 of them intersected ore-grade material. So it definitely showed uh, that this project can be significantly expanded. So that's kind of the, the, the foundations of what we did when we first took over the company. Okay, but you've done additional drilling, uh, and obviously, or not obviously, well, I, I would imagine, obviously, given the high success rate of, of hits that you're talking about, that... Uh, that, that we'd be looking at a bigger deposit potentially than what you looked at um, for the initial economic study. Yeah, no, we, we fully expect this deposit to continue to grow with expiration. And uh, as you mentioned, we went from the uh, preliminary economic assessment that AMEC had done. We're now in a full feasibility uh, phase study, and it's targeting 150,000 ounces of production. And that's being done by Capus Cassidy out of Reno, Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're one of the, the top engineering firms in the world for, for heap leach uh, gold operations. So that's, that's underway right now. And uh, on July 15th, I guess last week, uh, we received our Category 2 uh, drilling per, uh, uh, exploration permit. Now, that's a very uh, a much more complicated permit to get but it allows you uh, concession-wide, unlimited, basically unlimited uh, drilling of the property. Now, it took us about five and a half months to get that, uh, so there's been a quiet period for Celadon because you had to basically stop all exploration, um, uh, do all your rehabilitation of the site, and then apply for the Category 2. And it was a very in-depth uh, process. We had to get archaeology uh, reports, uh, social community uh, uh, studies and transparency meetings, uh, water, environment studies done. So that was completed. We received the permit. A lot of these studies will be used in the baseline studies for our, our full mining permit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once we received that uh, drilling permit, Jay, uh, last week, we initi- immediately mobilized uh, our drill contractor. Uh, we currently have two drills turning at the site. We will have four drills operating by the end of uh um, August, and we're planning on having six diamond drills working by the end of October of this year. Well, we should have a lot of news coming from your company then, I guess, in the next weeks ahead. Well, we're planning on completing about 30, over 30,000 meters of drilling uh, before the end of the year. And just to put that into some context, uh, the, the property uh, since we've, all the drilling on the property since we took over was 40,000 meters. So uh, we're undertaking almost a uh, 100% increase in all the uh, exploration drilling that was ever done in the property. So that's a significant uh, undertaking, and it's the most drilling 
uh, that was ever done in the property coming up in the next, uh, I guess, the next six months, Jay. So there's going to be a lot of news flow. Uh, we're really optimistic about the results. This property is, is significantly under-drilled. And the other interesting fact about uh, Shawindo is that the discovery cost uh, historically and to date has been $6 an ounce. So for every wow. $6 in expiration, uh, we add an ounce to the resource. Mm. Well, that's a pretty good ratio if you can continue that. That's, that's really great. I'd like to get back. I don't know to what extent you can talk about this, but if the cost for $403 an ounce in the preliminary economic study, any sense of whether that number might go up or down uh, in the feasibility, or is it just too, too early to say? And, you know, this is, uh, Peter, this is something I've noticed from a macro perspective. In the gold mining industry, I watch very carefully the price of gold relative to other commodities, and it has gone up very substantially since the Lehman Brothers' failure in 2008. In fact, I talk about this frequently. We've seen an ounce of gold will buy, would have bought only 15% of the Rogers Raw Material Fund before the collapse of Lehman Brothers. It got up to 44%. It's about 41%. The point being that the margins for gold mining have been improving. Now, you mentioned this study. The preliminary economic study was in 2010, in December, the end of the year. So that's pretty recent. Um, but could there be some economies of scale? I mean, $403 is a pretty low cost to start with. And I you know, you could go up a lot and still have a very economic project, I would think. But any sense of what the cost of production might be, or, or is it just too early to say? Well, I'll give you, um, uh, you know, I'll bracket it in that the, the full economics are, are underway by the engineers, and that'll be mm. the final, final number. Um, I, I just want to, the, the preliminary economic assessment was completed in, in December of 2009, so about six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was, $400 cash cost at 100,000 ounces or 105,000 ounces of annual production. Mm-hmm. Um, as we mentioned, going to the 150,000 ounces of production per year, you will see economies of scale. And uh, although I don't want to commit to, to numbers, I think we'll be in the uh, you know the mid 300 uh, uh, dollar per ounce range. That's wow. what we're expecting. Um, mm-hmm. But again, at the end of the day, that'll come out with the with the engineering study. But we should be uh, significantly below the 400. And as you mentioned, in today's gold price, uh, it's going to be a low cost producer. It's going to be a uh, an excellent uh, mining project, very high internal rate of return, and very uh, strong net present value. I would imagine, though, that uh, if you're going from 105,000 ounces to 150,000 ounces, the capital cost could be somewhat higher. Any sense of what the capex might be on this project? Yeah, again, I'm going to bracket that that the studies are underway, but uh, what we're looking at here is a a 25 to 30 percent increase in estimated capital costs from the 90 million that we had in the the, uh, initial economic study. So what you're going to have is an additional uh, higher production rate from 105 to 150. Uh, you're going to have a lower cash cost per ounce from you know the 405 that we had in our study to the, the mid 300s. And again, I'm bracketing that that the, the actual numbers aren't available yet. And we're looking at a capital cost increase from the 90 million to about uh, 25 or 30 percent uh, higher. So in about the 120 um, million dollar range for the capex. Okay. Uh, well, it certainly looks uh, looks very exciting. Uh, you have 150,000 ounces. What sort of mine life would that give you, given what you have at this point in time? Uh, in, well, in, in and the- what we're looking at is, <clears throat> is continuing to grow that resource. And mm-hmm. the ideal mine life, uh, from my perspective, would be 
you know, in the range of, of a 10-year mine life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, and that's uh, what we try to target. Obviously, if we can increase that resource, what we would do is, is try to increase the, the production level uh, uh, to match that, that 10-year mine life. But what we see at Shawindo is a tremendous amount of exploration opportunities. Uh, we have the main corridor where we're focusing our, our drilling on right now, but we also have uh, two other corridors, a north corridor and a south corridor that have had uh, very little exploration. There, is four hole, there are four holes done in the north corridor, um, of which two intersected ore-grade material, and that's all that was ever done. So we're looking mm. at a, a, a potential here of, of, of a similar, it has a similar structure as the main corridor, which we're currently hosting our, our resource. Again, this property needs exploration. It's, it's had very little uh, drilling on it. As I mentioned, only 40,000 meters um, since 1992. <clears throat> and we're going to be aggressive. We have, we're, we're cashed up with the money to do the drilling and the engineering studies, and our focus is really to, to drill it off in parallel with uh, completing the feasibility study. Well, uh, you, you're talking mostly about oxide uh, production at this point in time. I understand there may be some potential for underground mining of the sulfides at some point in time. I think the sulfides represent uh, a really exciting potential, Jay. Uh, the structures at Shawindo are almostly, almost pure vertical, so they're, they're perfectly vertical. Uh, the oxide cap that we have uh, ranges about you know, 150, 170 meters from the mm. surface, and the outcrop, mm. it outcrops on the surface. But the epithermal system that we have, um, the geologists have pegged it at a potential of about 1,000 meters. So underlying that oxide cap, um, there's potentially up to you know, an additional 800 meters of, of sulfides. And where you have oxides, you have sulfides below. So the sulfide potential here um, is going to be a factor of what the oxides are, whether it's one or whether it's four, uh, it's going to be a factor of what the oxides are. And we're, although we haven't done a lot of uh, drilling on it, we only have one drill hold, uh, but it hit the sulfides uh, at 400 meters. So the potential for the sulfide deposit is uh, very strong. The other aspect about the sulfides is they tend to be about 50% increase in grade over what the oxides are. So again, it it hmm. potentially could represent a very significant economic opportunity at Shawindo. What, uh, speaking of grades, I don't think I've asked you, what are the sort of average grades you're anticipating at uh, Millhead for the oxide? Okay, the, um, the, the economic assessment done by AMEC had a gold grade of 0.7 grams per ton, so it's mm-hmm. a low-grade deposit, but the cutoff grade uh, was 0.17. So it gives you the, the magnitude of economics there. And again, you get that because it, it has a low stripping ratio. It has a very simple uh, milling or milling mm-hmm. process and mining process. It's, it's open pit, goes to a primary crusher, it goes onto heap leach pads, and then it goes into the ADR plant where we get the, uh, the gold production. So it's a very simple process, very low cost. And, and all the mines in that area, Jay, you know, the Lagunas Norte, uh, Newmonts, uh, Yanacocha, uh, Perina, all the mines in that area are low-grade, simple mining, uh, simple processing, and very good uh, um, uh, cash costs. I mm-hmm. think the Barrick mine is doing gold at about $180, uh, $200 per ounce. So they're wow. very, very simple mining uh, very good uh, cash margins. Well, you certainly could, and get your capital paid back fairly quickly with uh, with those kind of uh, margins. But 
Uh, what, um, with respect to Peru, I, mean, I just have to ask you this question because I know a lot of people are going to be wondering, what is your assessment of the, uh, of the political situation now, political stability in Peru? We haven't heard of many problems down there recently, but, but can you just give us a sense of what your thoughts are on that? Well, Peru is a, a uh, functioning democracy, so it's a, it's a democracy uh, like, like you know, Canada or United States. I, I, it's probably not as, um, as visually democ- democ- democratic as uh, we're used to, but it is a functioning democracy. Uh, there is an election coming up in uh, 2011, but again, we don't view any problems. Uh, it's, it's a democracy. They'll have uh, political uh, parties and they'll have a, a, a general election. Uh, what, what was really beneficial for Sullivan is we got this Category 2 permit. Uh, I was always concerned that uh, with elections coming up, things can get delayed uh, in, in the bureaucracy of, of getting permits, but that wasn't the case with us. We have the permit. Uh, we're good for uh, many, many years, right up to the mine operating stage. So that's, uh, that's a great benefit for us. Uh, so those are my comments. I mean, I'm not a political sure. analyst, but uh, I do view uh, Peru as it is a democracy, and we've had no uh, issues whatsoever. And again, it's a, it's a very large mining community. All the major mining companies in the world, uh, American, Canadian, uh, are Brazilian, uh, are all in Peru operating and, and being very successful. Sure. Well, I think the the listeners can certainly sense that there is some uh, very considerable upside here when you're talking about the kind of low cost you're looking at. I mean, if you're sub $400, we got $1,200 gold. Listeners can do their own arithmetic and figure out what sort of cash uh, cash flow might come out of the mining operation itself. Um, what uh, what though might be your biggest concern? What might keep you awake at night? What could go wrong? I guess is another way of asking the question for Solid. And it all looks it sounds pretty good. Uh, it sounds really good actually. But what what might you know? Mining is wrought with lots of risks. What do you think could go wrong? Uh, well, listen, Jay, that's a very good question. And you know, I I I always list when I looked at Shawindo, I always list about five things that uh, you know concerns that people may have and. And, and technically, it's really sound, and I'll hit on all those points. But mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the, the the five points that I would list on any pro, any project, uh, and, and ours also, would be community support. Um, and in our particular case, you know, we're in a mining district. Uh, we have a very supportive community. Uh, they know mining. Uh, they've been very supportive. The Category Two permit uh, is a good example that we had to go through a very extensive. Um, uh, transparency meetings where the community has an opportunity to participate and, and voice their concerns, and, and everything went very well. So uh, the community is always very important for any mining project, and having their support and buy-in to the project is important. Uh, so that's a concern, and I think Sullivan uh, and the Shuinda property has shown that the support is there. Uh, so that's one issue that I, I, I list, mm-hmm. but I think we've done an excellent job, and it's supported by the ease that we got the uh, Category 2 permit. The other issue that uh, when you look at these these open pit low-grade mines is the grade, and and you asked the question, and our deposit is, you know, in the 0.7, 0.8 gram per ton, which Mm -hmm. I think listeners might think is low-grade, but again, you've got to bracket that into what the cutoff grade is. What is the minimum grade you can make money at? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in our particular case, you're looking at 0.15, 0.17, so there's a big margin uh, and that's reflected in the cash cost that you mentioned. So the grade is low, but because of the mining process and the recoveries, it's, it's very profitable. 
And the other issue in, in, in all mining projects is the mining. Is it a complicated mining process? Is it simple? And when you look at Shawindo, it's an open pit. It outcrops on surface. It's got very uh, low stripping ratio. I also would like to add that our elevation, you know, when you speak of Peru, I think some of your listeners might vision, um, you know, at the side of a mountain. We're not. We're at 2,800 meters. It's a very good operating level. Uh, you wouldn't notice any different from, from walking on our site than walking down the street. Uh, the mining is very simple. It's uh, large trucks that go into a primary crusher. It goes onto a conveyor belt. It goes to heap leach pads where it's uh, uh, sprayed with solution, and then we recover the gold. So, again, very simple mining. And then the other issue that always affects mining projects is uh, metallurgical recovery. Sure. And in, our ca- and in our case, and in all the mines in the area, uh, the nature of the ore, uh, it leaches very well. We're looking at uh, you know, a plus 80% recovery. Mm-hmm. It recovers very fast. We're looking at about a 45-day uh, period to get all the gold out of the, out of the rock. So again, if I go through the list of things that I always look at uh, mm-hmm. to evaluate mining projects, uh, Sullivan and the Schwindel project have, are very, very high on, on, on all those uh, items. Well, thank you, Peter, so much. And unfortunately, we're out of time. I think, uh, folks, you want to pay attention to people that have been successful in the past, and Peter has, so he's gone over his list of, of issues there that we ask him about. Uh, Peter, what is your website so our listeners can keep track of your progress? Okay, our website, Jay, is www.sullidan.com, sullidan.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Peter. I hope to have you on this show again sometime in the near future to give us an update as well. But that's all the time we have now. Um, But don't go away. We're going to have Daniel Estulin. He's the premier authority on the Bilderberg Organization, as well as economist Adrian Salbucci will be with us. Uh, Adrian tracks the globalization efforts of those same rich and powerful people who are the Bilderberg Group. And so if you want to really know why our leaders around the world are bailing out rich bankers, you won't want to miss our discussion with both Daniel Estulin and Adrian Sabucci. I'll be right back. Don't go away. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. 
Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. CA for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Solidan Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try too hard You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. It's a pleasure to welcome two men we have had on this show before. I'm talking about Daniel Estulin, uh, who resides in Spain, and Adrian Salbucci, who lives in Argentina. Though both of these men living, uh, are living in Spanish-speaking countries, they both speak English very, very well, so I'm very pleased to have them on for that purpose as well. Uh, they also have websites, and there's a great deal of information there on both of their websites that are in English as well. Uh, because both of these men have been with us before and because their biographies are on my Voice America webpage and because we're certainly not going to have enough time to even begin to scratch the surface of all the things these gentlemen have to say in the next hour, I don't want to spend too much time reading their biographies. Rather, just suggest that you go there to uh, our website and, uh, and, and review their biographies. Uh, Daniel Estudan, though, just, just, just for a brief uh, introduction here, Daniel Estudan is a premier authority on the Bilderberg Group, and Adrian Sabucci has studied and written extensively about globalization, which is, of course, the goal or a major goal of the Bilderberg Group. So I'd like to welcome both of you, Daniel Estudan and Adrian Sabucci, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. 
Hello, Jay. Well, Hello, Daniel. Much. Welcome, both of you. you. So much, to, so good to have you with us again. Uh, I would. Uh, our listener base has really been growing very rapidly. Thanks, in, in no small part, to your uh, bo- both of your uh, appearances on our show before. We've had a lot of very interesting people. I think you know people really want to know what the truth is. At least a lot of people want to know what the truth is. A lot of people would rather not be bothered with the truth. Would rather just you know live out their lives and, and not worry about it. But because there are a lot of people who really want to know the truth, I think that's one of the reasons this show is doing so well. And it's people like. Like you, who are willing to, um, you, Daniel and Adrian, who are willing to scratch the surface, who are willing to dig deep to find out what's really going on, not the propaganda we're given every day by the mainstream media, who have their own, their own uh, agenda. But well, you mean New York Times lies? <laughs> the New York Times, all the, news that's, all, the, all the news that's fit to print, they used to say. And I suppose that, uh, Daniel, you would have in Spain your own uh, propaganda machine there, as well as, I'm sure, Adrian, in Argentina, the, the equivalent of the New York Times for your countries. Well, you know, in, in Spain we have this thing called uh, El País, which is what we call the, you know, the, the Spanish version of Pravda, the Soviet, good old Soviet newspaper, which used to, you know, tell us that the sky was always bluer over the Soviet skies than anywhere else in the world, and we're also lucky to have been, you know, born in that amazing country, you know, call the Soviet Union, and yes. uh, the same thing they had in Spain when Franco was a dictator, and I'm sure they had the same thing in Argentina and everywhere else. A little, you know, gray man wanted to control, uh, you know, their populace. So the idea is to keep people believing that things are pretty darn good and they don't need to be unhappy. Well, you know, it's pretty difficult to, you know, to pull that big rabbit out of a little hat because things are certainly not going well anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, with propaganda machine, what what the media has been able to do. And I know Adrian will agree because, you know, he and I have talked about this before. Uh, you know, they've been able to convince us that what we see on television and what we read on the front page of the New York Times has to be the truth, and they will laugh in your face when you tell them that there's another dimension of the truth and it has nothing to do with the mainstream press because, the, you know, the people will basically say to you, that's the case. If the CIA, if the United States government, if they deal drugs, if they're in Afghanistan because of the drug trade, because to make sure that the drugs actually wash themselves, or to get the drugs to wash themselves through Wall Street, why isn't it on the cover of the New York Times? Because, again, the media, the big media, is part of the world elite. They're part of the Bilderberg Group. They're part of the CFR, part of the Council of Foreign Relations. And, of course, you know, they, they play the same game, and they're part of this, you know, juggernaut machine, and they're certainly not our friends. They're our enemies. Right, but the idea, of course, is to make us think that things are pretty good, and they do a pretty good job of it. I talked to uh, another guest on this show some time ago, um, Dmitry Orlov, who's written a very interesting book on, and he, he believes that the United States is following the path of the Soviet Union towards its own destruction, but, but he made the point that our propaganda machine in the United States is far superior to what they had in the Soviet Union. He said the people in the Soviet Union just knew it was the government, knew it was a lie, and they knew that the sky wasn't blue. But uh, in the States, uh, he says he thinks people are, are, pretty, well, you know, are pretty well succumbing to, uh, to the propaganda. Would you guys, would both of you agree with that, that it's a much more effective machine? Adrian? Uh, 
Yeah, look, uh, I was listening to Daniel, and I fully agree with what he says, and I was wondering, uh, in Spain, in the United States, in Argentina, it's the same story time and again. Uh, we have the same media outlets here, which will tell you, as, as Daniel was saying, that, this, that the things are just fine. It's just a question of waiting for the stock market to go up or for unemployment to go down a little bit, and we're back in business. Now, the thing that I think, we, this is the point to, to, to underline it, is we are under psychological warfare. I mean, this is psychological warfare warfare coming out, not just to the mainstream media, but also Hollywood that helps out a lot by promoting certain behavioral patterns, certain lifestyles, and so forth. And when things, when the going gets rough, as it is now, they will come up and say, okay, maybe it's going rough, but there's no other alternative. They will always make you feel that no matter how bad things are, there is no other alternative. And Daniel was just saying a few minutes ago, in the Soviet Union, uh, it, it, it worked similarly, but at least you knew who the enemy was was. You knew that the enemy was in the Kremlin. You knew that the enemy was that soldier walking down the street. In America, in Western Europe, we don't even know that. Because in a way, it, it goes back to what an old professor of mine used to say. They discovered that there were basically two ways of controlling people. Either with a cop, a policeman in every corner with a very ferocious-looking dog, the Soviet system, or with a TV set in every room, the American system. Well, the TV set in every room won the day. Mm -hmm. So that is the system that they have imposed for globalization. And mm -hmm. the thing is that at least in the Soviet Union, the Soviet orb, people knew people knew that they, they it was based on fear. People feared their authorities. People feared that if you know they could be they could end up in jail. That they they they, they could have their their door knocked that at four in the morning and uh oh we're in trouble in america people don't even know that is the tragedy of the whole thing their lives are being destroyed their lives are being absolutely taken over but the chains are not on their feet and in their hands or in their wrists their chains are in their minds so this is much more difficult to undo that's the bad part the downside the good side is that when people realize what's really happening to them i think that the revolutionary spirit in the best sense of the word of trying to get rid of this will go forward and the balance will tip very quickly well, that could yeah, uh, that could very well so be. I'm it certainly uh, it certainly is a very uh, a very revolutionary um, attitude. I think among a small group of people, but for the most part, I think most people are still buying the system now. Uh, we talk about who they are. You use the word they several times, and, and we want to ask Daniel. I really want to get Daniel, get your take and on the latest Bilderberg Group, because when I think of who they are, I think of the Bilderberg Group, because I think of the Bilderbergs as sort of way high up there in a secretive group of very powerful, elitist people. Daniel, you were on our show before, and uh, you know you explained who the Bilderberg people are, but we've had a lot of new people have joined this show since then. Could you just perhaps give a brief uh, introduction of who the Bilderbergs are and what this organization is about? Okay, well, you know, Bilderberg is uh, a lot of people, especially the, the, uh, the, you know, the conspiracy crazies, the uh, believe in the Cartesian fantasy world in which the isolated intentions of some individuals, rather than the dynamic processes, uh, shape the course of history as the movement of evolving ideas and themes over successive generations. Now, Bilderberg is not a, a secret society. It's a private organization. They're not, you know, the evil eye. They're not the top of the pyramid. You know, all these crazy things you hear about from people who really don't understand, you know, how all, all these organizations work and interlock, and which is, you know, again, very interesting. I'm very glad that Adrian is here because, you know, obviously Bilderberg interlocks with other organizations such as Trilateral Commission and the Council of Foreign Relations. You know, in the world of international finance, there are those, you know, who steer the events. You're talking about the them, no? And those who react 
two of the events. Now, while the latter are often better known, they're greater in numbers and seemingly more powerful. True power, of course, rests to the former at the center of this global financial system. The financial oligarchy represented today by the Bilderberg Group. Now, the idea behind each and every Bilderberg conference is to create what they themselves call the aristocracy of purpose between European and North American elites on the best ways to manage the planet. In other words, the, the creation of a global network of giant cartels more powerful than any nation on earth destined to control the necessities of life of the rest of humanity. That said, it has nothing to do with one world government. It has nothing to do with new world order. As a lot of people point out to George H.W. Bush's speech back in the 1990s, rather it has to do with the concept of one world company limited. It's the idea of corporations that have a lot more power than any government on the planet. And of course, we're seeing it right now in Europe. You know, we have International Monetary Fund, you have the World Bank, you have European Central Bank, all these unelected by anyone individuals who are telling, you know, uh, sovereign nations such as, well, they're not really sovereign, but let's just, you know, make believe that they're sovereign, such as Greece and Spain, what they should do in their house and how they should organize their economies in order to continue being a useful member of the international community. So that's what it's about. Again, it's, it's, it's the idea of people, it's a, a meeting of people who share a, a, a similar or the same concept. That concept has nothing to do with one world government. That concept is about money. It's about control of the money, control of the world economy through corporations. Okay, but let me understand. If we're talking about a one world corporate state, essentially, would that not be like a government, though? Or would we have a loose, uh, say, um, a loose or a number of large corporations that wield power and, and control policy? Well, you know, uh, first of all, uh, you know, Bilderberg, they're not exactly a control group, but it's a very important group because, you know, it represents the Nazis, uh, you know, who first founded it, such as Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, the consort of the Queen Julianne, the, the Queen of, of, of Holland, and Prince Philip of the British royal family. And uh, it's, a, it's significant because it's a medium of bringing together financial institutions, which are the world's most powerful and most predatory financial interests. And at this time, it is that combination which is the core of the enemies of humanity. And as, as I said before, the example is that you have corporations are telling governments what they should do. As an example, in the United States, you have British Petroleum basically is telling the President of the United States what they are willing to do, what they're not. And if people don't understand that, you know, there's very little I can tell them. Mm. Uh, Adrian, so with respect to, to your country, to Argentina, uh, how do you see Argentina linking into this, this big global picture or the picture? Do the Bilderbergers have any sway over Argentinian politics, do you think? Well, not, not the Bilderbergs directly, because there are practically, I think, only a few years back there might have been an Argentinian even being invited to attend the conference. Uh, you know, I, I was just listening very carefully to Daniel, and I would even publicly uh, uh, mention uh, to my good friend Daniel Esteli that maybe people like himself, myself, and, and, and some others, we should work together to map out, I mean, really prepare a good map of how this very intricate and complex network of interlocking organizations, all of which are private. One of the things that I mentioned time and again is, the, is that the great phenomenon of privatization that has taken place over the past 20 years is the privatization of power. Power, the ability to do, get things done, and ensure that other things don't get done, that has become privatized. And for, you have, for example, Bilderberg, the trilateral commission 
the Council on Foreign Relations, the World Economic Forum, a whole host of many, many, I mean, there are literally probably thousands of organizations interlocking around the pyramid because power, private power, is very pyramid-like, uh, vertical. And when you get down to a country like Argentina, which is completely in their hands, it is done not directly through the Bilderbergs or, or, or the Council on Foreign Relations, but through uh, interlocking supplementary organizations that will work their way downwards to control a country like Argentina. And again, when you look at the Argentine political system, which I think what I'm about to say also works for Peru and for Ecuador and for just about any other country in our region as well, and I would venture to say also for Spain and even the United States, when you look at every country, what you basically have is a so-called democratic system, which is completely, completely subordinated and based on money power. In other words, how does somebody in my country, in Argentina, get himself known well enough so that he can say, I'm candidate for president? Well, mm -hmm. he needs literally hundreds of millions millions of dollars for his campaign, for the TV set, and, the, and for the television and the radio and, and the newspaper covers and so forth. That takes hundreds of millions of pesos or of dollars or of euros, depending on whatever country you are. So the people that will actually get seen and whose opinions will even be propagated amongst the populace are those who have won the favor of money power. Mm. Now, money is not democratic. So a so-called democratic system, which is subservient to money, is not democratic because money is not and should not even be democratic. The economy should not even be democratic. So in our country, to wrap that idea up, what we basically have had over the past 30, 35, even 40 years are different presidents and governors and ministers and congresspeople, senators and, and uh, de deputies, as we call them down here, who are where they are not to do the bidding of the common interest of the people of Argentina or of Peru or of Ecuador, but to do the bidding of those people who finance their campaigns. So that's why time and again, the laws that are enacted, the, the, the subjects that are addressed and, and other subjects that are never addressed are always the ones, not that the people really need and want, but the ones that the, the money power, the, the, the major corporations. Um, uh, uh, Daniel was talking about British Petroleum. British Petroleum, I could even describe a, a really incredibly complex uh, a process they made that they ended up owning Argenti Argentina's oil. Mm. Because after, yeah. after the Malvinas Falklands War in 1982, it would have looked very bad for BP to privatize Argentinian oil in their favor. So they, they used as a front company Repsol in Spain, which all of a sudden appeared in the 80s. And they are the ones who are really behind the, the ownership of Argentina's uh, former oil company, YPF. So the moneyed interest control, which explains then why um, you don't really ever have any change. So some people were expecting Obama to make a change, maybe pull us out of Afghanistan, maybe pull us out of out of uh, out of the mid out of the Middle East a little bit more than than Bush had. But nothing changes. If anything, Obama seems to be as as steadfast towards uh, Afghanistan as any place else. And so I guess what you're saying, Adrian, is that we are given a choice to vote on people that are. We are given a choice to vote on people who are acceptable to the moneyed interest. Exactly. Exactly. I, I would like to talk, you talked a little bit about a pyramid and a vertical structure, so I'd like to get back to this notion of there has to be a hierarchy then. Uh, am I wrong in thinking that the Bilderbergs, Daniel, maybe you can answer this, am I wrong in thinking that the Bilderbergs are at the height or at the, at the top of this structure? No, they're not. In fact, you know, what today is called the Bilderberg Group, uh, uh, already existed about 800 years ago. It was called the Venetian Black Nobility, and these people are the root of uh, uh, of all European royalty. For example, that's one of the reasons why. Uh, again, uh, Bilderberg is uh, your NATO alliance, which is why uh, uh, no uh, South American or Asian member of any power elite ever goes to Bilderberg conferences. Of course, there are exceptions. Like this year, 
uh, Gustavo Cisneros from uh, Venezuela, but he's also a Spanish citizen, attended Bilderberg Conference. But it's really relevant because Bilderberg is the NATO, uh, old NATO alliance, Europe, United States, and Canada. Um, then you have, of course, the Trilateral Commission, which is, you know, uh, the Europeans, uh, Asians, and the uh, Americas, and the Council for Relations, which is the American uh, version or, or younger brother to the Bilderbergers. But uh, above the Bilderbergers, uh, you have the Venetian Black Nobles. They've been around since the, uh, about the Fourth Crusade, uh, 1200, 1204. I spent about almost three years researching their roots back in the uh, uh, late 1990s in the National Library in Florence, and I found some amazing, amazing information. In fact, Bilderbergers, they were founded by the synarchist movement of empires, who, of course, financed the Nazis in the Second World War. And synarchists themselves, they were founded by the Martinist, esoteric, uh, uh, Masonic uh, secret society back in the 70s, 70s as a kind of a counterattack against the principles and the achievements of the American Revolution, and they themselves were founded by the, uh, uh, by the Venetian nobles. So it's, uh, it's uh, I wouldn't even say it's a pyramidal structure. I would say it's rather lateral. It's one of the reasons you can never, you know, there's like nobody really leads. There's no, you know, president. There's no, which is one of the things a lot of conspiracy uh, mavens believe, or people who are just beginning to research. They think that it's the same kind of a structure you would have in a corporation, President, board of directors, general director, regional directors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like that because, you know, if one of us gets lucky enough, we can actually cut off the head of the man who runs the whole show or pulls the strings from behind a curtain. Then you're going to have a leaderless organization, which is why they're kind of, you know, nodes within themselves. They kind of interlock laterally. So no matter where you cut, you can never actually get at the center because there is no one center. But the decisions taken, for example, at the... Uh, you know, in January, you have the uh, <coughs> uh, World Economic Forum in Davos. Then in, uh, um, in March, the, uh, the Trilateral Commission meets. Uh, in, uh, in April, the, uh, the Council for Relations, they have their meeting. In May, June, Bilderbergers meet. In September, you have International Monetary Fund, World Bank have their annual meeting. Then October, November, December, you have regional meetings of the Trilateral Commission. But there's no one person leading these. But the decisions taken at one of these meetings get passed on before you know it. You know, back in 1992, Bilderbergers talked for the first time in Avion in France about creating a world UN, you know, led army. And then it's like three years later, during the, you know, the height of the war in, uh, in, the, in the Balkans, it became a key issue in, in various uh, national elections in Europe. And then in 1996, it became a key issue in European parliamentary elections. Then again, BBC started talking about it, the need to create uh, the, uh, the European Rapid Reaction Force, which would be kind of like United Nations European Army, because saying well, we could never have again you know, the concentration camps we had in the Second World War. And lo and behold, in 2006, after the Bilderbergers met in Canada, Okay, on the front page of Toronto Star, which is a Bilderberger-led uh, own uh, uh, periodical in Canada, you know, they talked about, uh, the, the headline was, you know, finally there's an agreement on how to save all these unprotected poor people, you know, in all these countries by creating the United Nations-led army, you know, of, uh, of world uh, 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 nations. And so it took them 14 years, actually, to get to that stage and for people to accept it. But again, there's like no one person leading the charge. But, they, you know, they keep gnawing at it. They, you know, they keep prodding, keep, you know, getting that information out of the press, keep seeing how people react. And whenever somebody reacts too violently, they just adjust, you know, their approach. And eventually, and we're seeing it in Europe with the way that, you know, European constitution was, was destroyed by, by people who didn't want to be, you know, belong to a European nation. And they came back with this Lisbon Treaty, which is exactly the same thing. 
and they pushed, pushed it through because there was a political will to do it by the bureaucrats against wills of the people. Against the people. Well, we're just about needing to go to station break, um, or to a commercial break here, I should say. And uh, I, I find this extremely interesting, Daniel, this notion of the, the Venetian black nobles. And, and how far back did you say they go? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the oldest family that I found, the Venetian black nobility, are the Frescobaldis. They're, you know, they're the roots of all the European families. And they're actually well, you know, we're talking about wealthy families. Uh, you know, for some strange reason, we're told that the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the, you know, these people who are, who are basically, you know, your shoe cleaners to the really wealthy people, and I do mean that. You uh -huh. know, when the real wealth, for example, Frescobaldi's wealth, is measured in quadrillions of dollars. And I'm not just throwing a big number at it, you know, to impress you. It okay, so but, but you know, would I, go back, what, centuries? Quadrillions. We're talking about, you know, eight, 800 years ago. I poured over, okay. you know, old notary papers, you know, uh, land deeds and leases and, and properties. And you just add it up, and it works out to, you know, hundreds of quadrillions dollars. And I have one extract of, you know, of Baron Krupp's bank account. That's K-R-U-P-P, -P, old 19th century German, you know, industrialist and, and gun runners who also financed Hitler. And in one bank account, this man has $112 trillion. Why do they tell us that Bill Gates with his paltry $40 billion is the world's richest man? Very interesting. We've got to go to station break right now, to a commercial break. I want to pick up on this some more, Daniel, as soon as we come back with Adrian Sabucci and Daniel Estulin. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barker Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. 
Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a lovely ride you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. I uh, just need to thank our sponsors for making the show uh, possible. The second hour, our sponsors are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Brigus Gold Corp., Everton Resources, Millrock Resources, and Golden Hope. Well, I'm going to jump right back into the discussion. This is fascinating stuff, and I want to pick up, Daniel, with where we left off. You talked about how you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and some of these people we hear about all the time are not the most wealthy people in the world. And you gave the name, I think you gave the name of someone, and you mentioned that he has, is worth literally trillions of dollars. Could you run that by me again and our listeners let well, us know? Well, it's, it's, it's quadrillions. <laughs> it's quadrillions with a Q. Uh, but it's, uh, the name is Baron Krupp. K-R-U-P-P, and I do have documents with this man's uh, bank accounts on my webpage, and in one bank account is $112 trillion, and I've been able to actually locate over 3,000 of this man's bank accounts. Now, I don't even want to think how much money he has in these bank accounts, and if I found 3,000, he probably has 300,000 bank accounts. You know, it's, uh, when, when I sign books for people, I always say, welcome to the world of smoke and mirrors. You know, yeah. it's, we've been sold this reality, which has absolutely nothing to do with the real world. It has more to do with the world of Alice in Wonderland than with the real world. And, you know, we've been, we've been peddling, you know, they've peddled the, the Buffets and the Gates as, as, as the world's wealthiest man. But, you know, it's only logical, if, you know, if, if, as we say in Russian, if you're on friendly terms with your brain, it should be only logical that throughout history, the world's most powerful people, who are also the world's biggest predators, 
biggest killers and you know and biggest slave runners and biggest drug pushers mm-hmm. they obviously do not want their names to be known which is why for example you know you you may know one name and that's uh, uh Astor you know mm-hmm. Lord Astor because of the hotel Astoria sure but you know this is also the old Venetian family who that they don't have quadrillions but they certainly have trillions of dollars of wealth uh-huh. so again and i spent you know years researching this stuff and in, 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 you know, in, in dark dungeons and, 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 you know, and private musty libraries. And I found a lot of it. I found very little, I'm sure, with what there is out there. But again, the world, world's wealth is not measured in, in billions of dollars. I guarantee you that. When we're talking about families, I just have to ask you about the name Rothschild. Where do they fit into this picture? Well, you know, again, it has to do with money. And, and you know, you take the Rockefellers, their wealth is 150 years old or young. Mm. In human history terms, it's very little. Yeah. Bilderbergers are only 50 years young, and you have to ask yourself the question, you know, where did they get their money from? You know, when you take the Rothschilds, their wealth is 250 years old. You know, that's a little bit old, but the Venetian nobles, their wealth is about 1,000 years old. Right. So the, Roth- the Rothschilds apparently have trillions of dollars. Well, it only makes sense that, you know, the, the Venetian nobles have quadrillions of dollars. And one of the most powerful Venetian nobles is the Queen of England, Elizabeth II. You know, half of her roots are in Germany, Dutch of Lundberg, and the other half belongs to the uh, uh, old Venetian uh, house, uh, house of Albert Azol, which is also Marquez de Este de Venezia. Okay. Well, it's fascinating. You know, the, the higher up you go, the wealthier these people are, the less you hear about them. You don't the hear crazy, much about the Rothschilds at all. You do hear. So I guess the front, you know, everybody holds out Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett, and these are the people that are supposed to be the richest people in the world. They sort of are enablers, in a sense, to the people that are much wealthier, the people that really have control. So we, uh, the smoke and mirrors is a good way of putting it. Now, I want to ask you, Adrian, you had some things to say at the break as well about how... Uh, how this structure that Daniel's talking about fits in, and you had some applications for Argentina. Could you share that with our listeners? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm finding this extremely fascinating because we are right now, this is, your program is probably one of the very few places where this actually happens. We are talking about the upper, upper part of the pyramid, of the power pyramid. And as Daniel was saying, the more powerful you are, the less people know about you. So when you look at the lower parts of the pyramid, the very famous people are the people at the bottom of that tip, of the tip of that pyramid. Because, for example, you know, we're talking about Baron Krupp, we're talking about the Rothschilds, we're talking about, uh, the Rockefellers, and then we go way down and talk about Obama. Who on earth is Obama in this whole power structure outside a well-paid manager? And when you walk, when you walk down, uh, as far as individuals are concerned, when you walk your way down that pyramid, as far as countries are concerned, and you look at Argentina, well, you see that they don't even uh, go down as low as even inviting anybody in Argentina to become a real part of that power structure, because there is nobody in Argentina who would even uh, qualify to join. Now, we do have some uh, examples, for example. We all know that Bill is not even an organization, it's just a loose formation of people. The Trilateral Commission or the Council on Foreign Relations, for example, which are more visible in this part of the world, are actual organizations. They have websites, they have addresses, they have offices, and so forth. And uh, many of you may remember that in 2001 and 2002, Argentina suffered one of the worst banking, monetary, and financial crises in modern times. And the crisis really began in early 2001, when the whole mechanism was set into motion that would lead to a total collapse in December 
summer of uh, of uh, 2001. Now, in March of that year, just nine months before that collapse, we were in the Rockefeller, David Rockefeller himself and William Rose from Citicorp and the American Society personally traveled to Buenos Aires to tell then-President De La Rua of Argentina, you must name... Domingo Cavallo as economy minister, because Cavallo was a Rockefeller man. He was, he's an Argentine citizen, but he was a, a man of the Rockefeller system. And in March of that year, at the Trilateral Commission um, meeting in London, Domingo Cavallo was invited to become a participant in the Trilateral Commission. Not a member, just a participant. He was one of three from Latin America, together with Mario Vargas Llosa, who really had double nationality. He was he's also there as a Spaniard. And Enrique Iglesias, who was then the chairman of the Inter-American Development Bank. Now, as soon as Cavallo was named as a participant in the Trilateral Commission, the doors were swung wide open for him to take over Argentina's economy, do everything to, to in, in favor of the banks, everything against the Argentinian people and the Argentinian government, and of course we were left there to pick up the pieces. So, you know, the, the, we have examples of how this intricate uh, uh, network works, because Cavallo, prior to that, was in the America Society. He was always a Rockefeller protege. And the America Society is also one of the organizations subservient to the Council on Foreign Relations. As a matter of fact, their offices are just across the street on Park Avenue and 68th Street, where the, uh, the CFR have their offices, and they have like a spring of people from different Latin American countries, Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, Uruguay, Venezuela, and actually with Mr. Cisneros, and they are the ones who sort of uh, blend in and uh, receive the orders, so to speak, of what they should be doing in their region. And they are the ones who decide to finance this guy, but we won't finance that guy. The money will go towards this political party, but it will, it will go against that political party. So-and-so will be shown in a good light, so-and-so will be shown in a bad light. And that way, through psychological warfare, through the media, they do control uh, people's passivity. In other words, they, what, what they want you and me and everybody to do is nothing, just to accept what they tell you as the only reality, not just as the best reality, but, the, uh, but as the only option. And in that sense, one last comment I'd like to make regarding what Daniel was saying where I fully agree that this is a money question. This is not Illuminati. We don't have to go into, into weird things and hocus-pocus to, to, uh, to, to, to try and unfathom what this is all about, although a lot of people are so shocked by this that they uh, inadvertently go into magical thinking. They figure, well, there must be the devil or Satan behind this. It's much more prosaic. It's much more uh, rational and so forth. Uh, the, the, the point I'd like to make is that they are harping, and they will be doing so on the idea of world government, not because they need any world government, because they are private, but because they still know that for maybe a generation, maybe two generations more, people still tend to think of power, public power, as governments. That's why, for example, they will give you an Obama with all the trimmings of a presidency and his inauguration and the elections and blah, 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 and so forth. And they will do that in Argentina and Spain also because people are only willing to accept, for the most part, that there is a democratic order, that every four years we elect a president, and that, and that president has all the symbols of power, the helicopter, Air Force One, a lot of Hollywood movies saying how powerful the American president and so forth. And they need people to believe that their elected officials are powerful. And so when those elected officials decide to cluster up into the G20 or cluster up into ever-growing international, supranational, and eventually world organizations, people will tend to follow because still there's a lot of people will say, oh, I don't, I don't want BP to, be my, to, to govern my country. I don't want the Exxon to govern my country. But they will still be willing to follow along if it's an Obama or a Kirchner like in Argentina or a Zapatero in, in Spain. 
Right. So the politicians are a front. They're a front for the power that's behind the throne. I, I want to get into, uh, I want to ask Daniel something about the Bilderberg meeting this year uh, in Spain, the annual meeting. But before we get to that, just so I'm sure I don't forget, uh, Daniel, can you give uh, people um, some sense of where they can follow your work? I know there's com is one site, and you, you've also published at least, at least one book that's, that's, been, uh, that's sold many millions of copies. Could you let our listeners know uh, where people can follow your work on an ongoing basis? Yeah, oh, the, oh, my webpage is com, and uh, I've actually uh, uh, released in English two books, uh, 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 the true story of Bilderberg Group, which has sold worldwide almost 4 million copies in 79 countries and 49 languages. And my new book is called The Shadow Masters. And uh, if Bilderbergers are the, uh, you know, the, the planners and the shadow masters are the doers. And what I do is I show how governments work with terrorists and, you know, and drug uh, traffickers and, and intelligence agencies basically doing the same thing, you know, uh, killing people and, uh, and selling drugs and, 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 and running uh, very nasty operation, uh, operations around the world, and I use different examples, such as war in Afghanistan, the Bilderberg conquest of, uh, of Yugoslavia, how they destroyed that country. Anyway, that's the new book called The Shadow Masters, and people can get it uh, in the United States by calling my publisher, Chris Milligan, at Trine Day, uh, 541-744-0090. It's a very, very brave man to put a lot on the line to actually get these books out so people can read and understand who does what to whom. So the them and these a powerful men who are no longer are, are faceless, but they have a face and a name. That, that's fascinating. So you can't pick up that book at uh, Barnes & Noble, your friendly bookstore, I guess. Oh, absolutely you can. Uh, oh, okay. That, you, oh, very much so. It's, uh, you know, they have, and, and, you know, in all the bookstores in America. Because, you see, if you don't, what people are going to start wondering is if what I'm saying is the truth. Right. You know, so they have to have, you know, X number of copies. Barnes & Noble have to have it in all the other stores. You know, the same way that having, you know, a group of priests, which is member builder group, you know, during the Bilderberger conference, they, you know, went out of the way to interview me, not because they wanted to, but because if they didn't, maybe people in Spain would suddenly start asking themselves if what Eschulen has been saying all this year is true about Bilderberg, that makes sense why the group of priests who is part of the group doesn't want to interview him. Right, and you were even inter- interviewed by the uh, European Union, I believe, weren't you? Well, I was actually gave a speech at the European Parliament, and that yeah. was a historic event. Uh, you know, <laughs> it would be like uh, speaking to the Joint House of uh, of, uh, of Congress. That's remarkable. And, uh, That's remarkable. Uh, yeah, Adrian, absolutely. I need to ask you as well, how can people follow your work? We're, we've got more to go here on the show, but I just want to get this out front so people will get it in the middle of the show and not tacked onto the end. How can people follow your work, Adrian? Uh, very quickly, uh, my website is www.asalbuchi, that's A-S-A-L-B-U-C-H-I, dot com, dot A-R. Um, all, all, my, all the stuff I've written for, the, for basically over the past 20 years is in Spanish, so we, we, you know, like I have a limitation that, fortunately, Danielle doesn't have. I'm preparing a book in English, and that will be available shortly. So, you know, it all started in a way because the Argentine experience of the, of the last 20 or 30 years shows that we've been uh, victims in, on a small scale of what is la- later happening on a large scale. In other words, Argentina's hyperinflation in 1989 and then financial collapse in, in 2001 and 2002, I think, is a, it, were experiments on a small scale 
scale of what is later be coming up or, or has already cropped up in the world economic uh, in, in the economy as of September 2008. I started putting that in English, and basically for the time being, I've, I've done that through videos, a whole host of videos in English, trying to uh, understand how the whole mechanism works, trying to understand what the real rationale behind the financial model is and why it uh, periodically collapses, whether it be long periods like 80 years in America or short periods like 12 or 15 years in Argentina. And, you know, trying to uh, convey all of that. But for the time being, basically, in, in my website and on YouTube, you will find is where you will find my English, my, uh, English language material. Indeed. I know that people can simply just Google your name in and they'll come up with the YouTube. There's some excellent uh, YouTube uh, videos. Uh, there's some excellent videos there that will really explain very, very well, Adrian, the work you've been doing. Uh, I, I have to ask Daniel some things, as I said, about the Bilderberg Convention this year in Spain. But before we get to this, I want to share a little experience I had this weekend uh, locally here in Queens, New York. Uh, and I want to get your take on it. My wife and I were driving along uh, the park, and we noticed there was this little pavilion out there. They were promoting chips for animals. The idea is that you can have this little chip installed in your in your dog or your cat, and if they get lost, you can track them down and find them. And I, I said to the lady uh, who was there at the booth, I said, how long will it be before they start putting those things in us so they can track us? And she looked at me without hesitating. She said, I have no doubt in my mind that they are going to implant human beings with chips to follow us around. And she said they will start doing it with infants. I'd just like your response. Uh, first of all, Daniel, what are, do you have any thoughts on, on, that, on this technology, the use of technology to control human beings? Is this something we really need to be concerned about? I'd ask uh, first Daniel, you, and then Adrian to comment on that. Well, you know, in my first book, which was released in Spain back in 2005, the uh, Spanish version of what, you know, the American book that came out, uh, I was actually talking about what, you know, the door, they have the technology, and they were implementing it back then, back in 2005, using child kidnapping scare, which was uh, quite prevalent in Spain over several months, uh, late 2005, in uh, uh, one of uh, Spanish states called Catalonia. And uh, suddenly all the uh, Spanish press, we're talking about the need to protect the children. How do you protect the children? Where you uh, uh, obviously, you know, uh, uh, chip them. And then uh, the discussion on television was, it was immediately picked up by CNN. It was immediately discussed on CNN. So this is how the media works. So again, I talked about this back in 2005. Absolutely, they're going to do this. They already have the technology that goes way beyond, you know, just simply chipping people with, you know, with very chips or whatever new chips they have. Such, with, you know, using such technology as Promise, P-R-O, uh, MIS, which is Prosecutor's Management Information System, literally in the intelligence world, they call you know God's eye in the sky. So it, you know, there's you know with, with promise the degree of separation between people is two percent. Uh, that that that's how advanced we are or they are. So there's really only one way we can actually fight this for people to understand what's going on and to become aware. Mm -hmm. And I, I would imagine they could almost uh, control currency in your bank accounts and what you can spend and where you can spend it and how and so on and so forth, right? Tax well, you and so forth. That's society, you see. You know, you don't need cash. You just need credit cards. After the credit cards, what you do is they just, you know, uh, put a chip on your arm and uh, uh, you just, you know, you, you, your body becomes, a, you know, a cash machine. And then suddenly, if you're, you know, if you're dissident, such as myself or such as Adrian, what they're going to do is just literally, you know, remove because, you know, our money in a bank account is just money, you know, zeros in cyberspace. Right. So if you press delete four times or three times, you know, suddenly instead of having $10,000, you only have $10. 
Right. And, uh, you know, your life is over, you know, economically right. speaking. So they can destroy you many different ways. Right. Adrian, any thoughts on that topic? Yes. Yeah, the, the, first of all, the cashless society, the cashless society is definitely a way of, of very dangerous control over people. Secondly, and as Danielle very well mentioned, they have to present this gradually in such a way that you will always, I mean, the majority of people will always per- perceive it as a benefit and not as an imposition. Remember, they, they learned their lesson from the Soviet state. People don't like things imposed upon them consciously by a big brother. So they, what, they, what they want is persuasion, and people will say, I chipped myself and I chipped my kids because it's for security is for safety and so forth, and I go around with this chip in my hand because I avoid having to have cash in my wallet and nobody can hold me up. So that's the second point. They have to make it persuasive. And the third, and probably the most structural one, is that, and I've said this in, in, in many of my works in, in, in videos, they needed globalization as a 20-year period during which they perfected the electronic surveillance and control system on a planetary level. It took them 20 years. They needed for the Soviet Union to go, which they did in, the ni- in 1990, very quietly. And now that globalization has given them those 20 years of development, whereby they feel that they can almost now really have total private control over the growth of the, of the, of the, of the better mass of the people of the world or the part, at least that they're interested in, that what they call the markets. They now need to go from globalization towards a more ambitious system, which I call world government, it might, but it's not world government in the sense of a public government, it's world government in the sense of a private government, as Danielle uh, uh, described at the beginning of the show, where that world government is merely an amalgamation of corporations moving forward towards common purpose, controlling resources, controlling people through the media, and yes, controlling public governments, controlling Obama, controlling Rodriguez Zapatero, the European Union, and controlling the Kirchners in Argentina, and, 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 and the Uribes in Colombia. So in a way, yes, the electronic infrastructure is already there for planetary, authoritarian, private government, and yet most people are not realizing it, so much so that a lot of people are perceiving it as something good, and CNN and Fox News will make sure that you see it as something good and never as something to totally dictator, dictatorial that goes against the basic freedoms of people. So what we're doing is allowing ourselves to be enslaved, essentially willingly allowing ourselves to be enslaved. And actually, as you say here, Adrian, I'm thinking about, there was a commercial uh, There was a commercial that was put out uh, by an organization, uh, I think a private corporation, uh, that had to do with health. And they were selling this notion of having individuals volunteer to have them chipped. You could keep track of things much more easily. So the idea is to get people voluntarily to accept this. Um, I, I want to go to you, um, Daniel. Daniel, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, great. Okay, uh, Daniel, getting back to the Bilderbergers, uh, the Bilderberg Group uh, and their meeting this year in Spain, uh, the big event, of course, as they were, uh, at least at that time, was the Greek problem, the Greek, uh, you know, the Greek financial problem. Uh, it seems to have died down some now, but can you give us, uh, we only have about five minutes left here on the show, uh, can, three minutes, my engineer is telling me. Can you give a summary of what took place um, in um, uh, in three minutes, uh, we can push it a little further. I'm sure if we need to, but can you just give our listeners a little sense of what what went on uh, in Spain this year at the Bilderberg uh, conference? I'll, I'll be very very brief. You know, basically the world is in a very difficult situation. On the one hand, you have Bilderberg Group and the power structures trying to destroy the world on purpose because they're trying to destroy the world's economy. There are just too many people on the planet, and in order to reduce the world's population, they have to reduce progress and development. But on the other hand, because of all these financial shenanigans back in the 1980s and creating such, you know, uh, mechanisms such as derivatives, 
they've lost control, but because what they're doing is they're trying to destroy it on, you know, organize the structure of the world economy. But it can't because they've lost control. And what happened on the 6th of May, uh, when the markets collapsed 10% in 16 minutes, and they said, whoops, you know, some guy pressed the wrong button on the computer key. Again, people who are on friendly terms with their brains should obviously understand that that's not true. What had happened was they simply no longer control the economy. As far as Greece and Europe is concerned, it's even worse, you know, than what we're being told. Uh, they're most likely going to create two-tier Europe. You know, the, uh, the, the first division, where you're going to have the Germans, the, uh, the French, the Dutch, you know, the Austrians. Yeah, and then you have the deadbeat states, the Spain, you know, Greece, uh, Portugal, pigs, as they call us. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in order to save, you know, the uh, European Union, Angela Merkel was saying that uh, we need to save the euro, which is, of course, is a lie. We should be working towards creating uh, Europe of the fatherland, as the Gauls concept, instead of, instead of monetary union, which simply doesn't work. So summarizing, very difficult situation. Uh, what I've noticed with G8 and G20 and the Bilderberg meeting, it's no longer a cohesive group working together towards a common goal. It's everybody rowing in their own direction, which means they're terrified, which means they're running scared. And if that's the case, we should be absolutely, you know, are running for cover because they know how bad things are. Okay, so what you're saying is that's a threat to us. Should should we be should we be pleased with this problem or, well, or not? Well, on the one hand, yes, we should definitely be pleased because you know if if European Union falls apart, it's absolutely wonderful because we should go back to being nation state republics and should go back to uh, uh, you know concept of general welfare as described in the in the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. But the idea is that if the whole world economy collapses onto itself and it's not an organized collapse. You just don't know what's going to happen. It's like if you pull a 108-story building, except you don't pull it you know, with organized orderly demolition, it just kind of falls over to one side, it's going to kill a lot of people. The same thing with the world economy. If they don't know what's going to happen, imagine what's going to happen to us. Yeah, speaking of buildings that didn't topple over, we had one, a couple of them in New York City that fell down very prim and properly, but that's another topic, I suppose, for another day. Um, uh, just, uh, Adrian, you're back with us. I think we lost you momentarily. Yes, yes, I, I, I rang back because I just want, I know, I know time is, is, is almost out and, and, and that you've got to, you've got to finish this part of the show. But this one point that I really wanted to mention, because I, I listened very carefully to everything, uh, Danielle said, everything you said, and whether it be about the chips or whether it be about the European Union be becoming a two-tiered system or whether it be about America having all its problems or whether it be the World Trade Center collapsing the way they did. There is a key point that is common to all of them. They need each one of us to accept this. They need us to believe in what they say as the official story and not in what common sense tells us. So what they need is they, they want to chain us, but they need us to voluntarily pick up those chains and put them around our necks and our wrists and our feet. What we have to do is ensure that we never do that voluntarily. So if anything, it's very good news, the fact that I, I agree with that, Daniel, that they are running scared, that they are really in a panic, because the more people that do not voluntarily take up those chains means that there are more people that they will have to impose the chains upon them. And if, to, if they impose the chains upon us, it means that they're going back to the Soviet regime, and that didn't work. So if anything, it's thinking with our own minds and our own common sense. There lies the secret to ensure that just as they fail with the Soviet Union, they will fail this time with this system, which is so similar to the Soviet Union, with the difference that instead of being coercive and mandatory, it is persuasive, and it's supposedly it's what everybody wants because they make sure that people do not realize, realize that there are so many other options out there. 
Okay, we're going to take Amen. a few extra Beautiful. minutes here. Uh, I've got an extra five minutes because this is there's just too many too many important things to talk about here. Uh, with respect to this coerciveness versus volunteerism, you know, uh, Daniel, I'd like to ask you. We've seen the Greek problem. It seems to have settled down a little bit. Has it? Has it not since the uh, Bilderbergs met? No. What basically has happened is just taken removed it from the front pages of the newspapers. The crisis is still there. The situation is still as, as deadly as before. They will never be able to pay back the money. And one of the things that the Bilderbergers were saying at the meeting is, you know, first of all, what, what we did was illegal, what they were saying, and it was very, very legal. You know, according to the, uh, to the Maastricht Treaty uh, back in 1992, you simply cannot, you know, uh, bail out another member state. That's absolutely illegal. Well, they just said, well, forget it. We will do it anyway. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, uh, now that they spent $750 billion on Greece or Euros, uh, you know, they, 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 Bilderberg is saying, now what? We need another $800 billion, uh, you know, to save Spain, to save Portugal, whoever we're going to get the money from. And, uh, <laughs> and the problem is that nobody has that kind of money laying around, so it will have to be borrowed. And if it has to be borrowed from European bond market, already falling apart at the seams, what's likely to happen? Well, basically all of them have agreed that we need even more selling, which would drive bond prices down and interest rates up. Needless to say, again, in terrible mess, terrible buying, they simply don't know what to do themselves. Well, it seems to me that that all makes a lot of sense, because whether it is under coercion or whether it's voluntary, if the markets are fooled with, if there is um, a, a, what the Austrians call malinvestment, or if, uh, you know, if the markets are not free to act, to, to work, and they're certainly not free to work because what we have, I think it's, you could call it corporatism or fascism or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's intervention in the marketplace, and there's all kinds of inter, interference and cons, uh, you know, in the, in the monetary system. I think in the gold markets, they're manipulated. There's, uh, you know, the, the guys that own the gold are, are dumping it, and there's paper gold. There's all kinds of games being played. Ultimately, what happens is when, when markets are not allowed to work, they break down, do they not? Didn't this happen in the Soviet Union? So whether it's coercive or whether whether it's something that we sort of are manipulated to voluntarily jump into or, or allow ourselves to be put into, uh, this thing is going to come down, isn't it? This whole global, this whole global thing is going to come down. And where does that leave the ruling elite? Do they do, uh, Mister? Um, you know, do, the, Jay, do these, can, these extremely can, can rich I, people keep power anyway? Yeah, Jay, can, can I can I just bring up a very quick comment on that because sure. you touched upon Greece. And Greece was exactly like Argentina. I wrote an article where I actually addressed to the people of Greece because I said, what's happening to you in 2009, 2010 is exactly what happened, what they did to us in 2001, 2002. I, I read that the article, difference, Adrian. The difference it's a brilliant being... article. Brilliant article. I read that article. And, and Adrian, Thank uh, you. we can get that on your website. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but the point, and this ties in with what you're saying, Jay, is that there was one major difference between Greece now and Argentina in 2001-2002. Greece had to be bailed out. Argentina did not have to bail out. And we were really, we were completely destroyed. 50% of our population fell below the poverty line. They never came back up again. And they know because psychological warfare uh, teaches them that people get used to their, to their predicament, that most people even got used to being below the poverty, the poverty line. Now, why do I say this? Because they can only continue this farce, as long as they continue, they can continue bailing countries out. If it gets to the point, and it's getting there very quickly, where they can no longer bail countries out, it will be Argentina over and over again, even in Europe, even in America. And then I'd like to see what they're going to do. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, we're talking about how much time is this going to take? And, and uh, Daniel, in, uh, you know, just sort of reviewing some of your remarks and some of the things you've written recently, you seem to think that um, at least the European Union is, is, you know, very much in jeopardy, that it could fall apart. Well, it's dead in the water. The way things are, it's absolutely dead in the water. And then that's, what, that's why, you know, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel you know, she, she's taken these drastic steps because, you know, they've been working towards the European Union since the end of the Second World War and ever since Bilderberg first came around back in 1954. So because, you know, it's a penultimate step. You have the you know, European Union, you have the, you know, different a variety of Asian unions, now the North American Union quickly being put together. You already have Mercosur in South America. The Asian Union is being cobbled together. So it's a penultimate step, to, you know, and the last step is have all these unions merge into one, you know, global company limited. And, of course, you know, when the centerpiece of this whole operation, which is European Union, you know, falls apart, uh, there simply cannot be, a, 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 you know, a world one company limited. So they're doing whatever is necessary. You know, they'll kill whoever they have to kill, get rid of whatever state that needs to be, you know, gotten rid of. But they'll, you know, reach their objective over our dead bodies. But then again, you know, it's... Uh, uh, <laughs> It's, you just don't know. It's an end game, and there's just so many, you know, uh, 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 wild, uh, you know, uh, wild options which they simply cannot control. And, and when you no longer control the options, it's, it, anything can happen. Right, exactly. Well, I think that I agree definitely with both of you that it's very good for people to understand what's really going on, not what the propagandists are giving us on the mainstream media. In fact, that's what this show is all about. That's why we have people like the both of you on here. We've had Ron Paul. We've had many other, Ed Griffin, many other people that are looking at, you know, going below the surface to try to figure out what's under the hood, what's making this car run or not run so well. Uh, I, I want to ask both of you just real quickly, if you could give us an idea, how is this going to play out? I mean, I'm, what I'm getting to it here is it's, you know, from a political point of view, as a citizen of the world, it's good to know what's going on so we can vote and act accordingly. But we also have to figure, you know, plan our financial lives while we still have them left. And, uh, you know, our, invest, our listeners, my subscribers, are investing in gold and gold mining companies because whether we go into a hyperinflationary fire or a deflationary depression, gold is real money. It really serves people best. Any thoughts from either of you or both of you about how does this situation resolve itself? Will, it, will we go down through some sort of hyperinflationary event globally or some deflationary depression? How do you think it's going to come apart? Adrian, uh, Jay, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, Adrian. Uh, yeah, uh, basically, I think that the way it's going to go ahead, it ties in with two very key points. What's going to happen politically and what's going to happen monetarily? Politically, and Daniel was just saying this uh, a few minutes ago, their pet project has been the European Union. If that falls apart, they are in real trouble. So we're going to see them doing everything possible so that the European Union doesn't break apart. If we cross the Atlantic and we go to America, part of the project is for America to be uh, probably even territorially split up into more controllable parts. So they want to keep one thing together on one side of the Atlantic and they want to bring it apart on the other side of the Atlantic. And this reflects on the monetary side. <clears throat> if the euro breaks up, they're going to be in real trouble, no doubt about it. And, 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 and that is... That, is, that they can replace with a global currency. They're, they're, they're still far away from being able to do that. But on the other side of the Atlantic, the U.S. dollar, they are hyperinflating it on purpose because they know that in the long run, if America ceases to be the superpower that it is, then the dollar will no longer be that necessary. So they probably want to have the European model
of staying together, but instead of keeping the euro as the key currency, they will probably usher in a global currency. What advice can we give people? Move away as far as you can from financial instruments, move towards economic assets that have intrinsic value, whether it be gold, precious metals, works of art, a house, a car, uh, gold, uh, uh, Mexican or, or, or South African gold coins, something that is crisis-proof, that no matter what happens when the crisis is over, you will still have something that has intrinsic value. If, if you have everything in paper after the crisis is over, the paper is only good for you-know-what. Right, exactly. And, uh, 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 Daniel, any, any thoughts, closing thoughts on this, on this topic? Well, you know, I, I can only say chapeau to, uh, to what uh, Adrian said. I would also have, you know, to develop the mind. It's the one thing that separates us from animals. And it's, it's the one thing that they're so absolutely terrified, that, you know, the, the, the Bilderbergers and their cohorts. Uh, you know, the, the ability of, of, of people to discover, you know, scientific principles of nature, which, of course, improve the lives of people, you know, per square kilometer of space over nature. And uh, that's called progress and development. So we should definitely make sure we get back to classical education because that system has been debased on person on purpose uh, through this thing called the outcome-based education. So again, not only invest in the instruments, but also invest in the mind of the children because they're our future, and without them, there's very little we'll be able to do because they've changed the paradigm of society. They've shifted the paradigm, which is why you see the, the younger generation, you know, most of them are degenerates. They walk right. like animals, they talk like animals, they look like animals, and when the moment comes to stand up for your constitution and die if you have to, They'll right. be watching, you know, Janet Jackson's left boob on national television, a right. stupid television show, instead of saying, you know, count me in. Right. I think that's good advice. Certainly the, the statist educational system is used as an organization, a, a, a organization to, to, shape, to shape our thinking and to get us to think in ways that, that serves their purpose. Well, we're really more than out of time. We could go on for hours with the two of you. I want to thank both of you again. Daniel, your website, just very quickly. Daniel Estulin, E-S-T-U-L-I-N, dot com. Excellent. And Adrian, yours? Asalbucci, that's A-S-A-L-B-U-C-H-I, dot com, dot A-R. Thank you, both of you gentlemen, for being with us. Uh, we're out of time. We're going to have, you, have to have you on again sometime in the near future. There's just too many fascinating topics that we haven't been able to get to today. That's all the time we have. But, folks, don't go away because coming up next, Ian Foreman. He's the president of Yale Resources. That's a small little gold mining company that I happen to personally have a lot of shares in, a lot for me anyway. It's all relative. Uh, it's at $0.07, cents, but Ian has some very interesting things to tell us, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian Foreman. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parker 
Victorville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.ca for further information. Soledin Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project, and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.soledin.com to learn more. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com That's questions, the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here with Ian Foreman. He's the president of Yale Resources. And also I have joining me my partner, Roger Wiegand, as well. Uh, we're not going to take a break because we, we just ran, we're, we're just really too short on time to do that today. So uh, I want to welcome Ian to the show again. Welcome uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, and Roger um, as well. Uh, now, Yale Resources, uh, we've had you on before, as, as we just said. Uh, you're trading on the Toronto Venture Exchange, YLL, uh, YRLLF on the uh, on the over-the-counter market, where I purchased my shares of your company, there's 71.4 million shares. You're about six or seven cents in U.S. money. That's about a five million dollar market cap. It's very speculative, it would seem. I mean, anybody, you know, you look at a six cent stock. Although I think you might argue that a low price stock with value is less speculative than, a, than an expensive value that's overpriced. But anyway, um, you have some real big news that you would like to share with our listeners. Tell us about it. 
Well, and, and thanks for that, Jay, and, and uh, we're very excited. We did uh, put out a news release today on the acquisition of a new property. It's called the Tenariba property, and it's right in the heart of Mexico's Sierra Madre. And uh, this is the part of the Sierra Madre precious metal belt, uh, famous deposits such as Dolores, Mulatos, Ocampo, Monterrey, El Sozal, all these multi-million ton deposits. Uh, and then this trend continues down all the way down to, to the world-famous Teotitla. And explorers have been gradually moving south, um, and uh, that's exactly where this project is. The Tenerife project, it's 81 square kilometers in size, so we really like the fact that it's, it's a good-sized project. So we've got a lot of land to explore, and there's multiple targets. But one of the best aspects of this project, in my mind's eye, is a previous company uh, in 2008 spent over a million dollars exploring this area before, unfortunately, as far as we understand, during the downturn, they, ha- they had to drop the property. And they dropped it, as far as we understand, for uh, reasons out of their control, not mm-hmm. for geology, as they, it looked like they were really gaining a head of steam on this project. Mm-hmm. All right, so what, how much work's been done on it? And is there, there's not a resource there yet, I guess. There's not a resource. However, there has been drilling, and the drilling was done um, in, in the language of their news release in the easier accessible areas of the property. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they drilled the best targets either. So mm-hmm. we're not at a stage where there's a resource, but we know from drilling that all of the geological ingredients exist on this property. We're dealing with uh, some discrete high-grade values in one drill hole. They intersected 45 grams per ton, just over a meter. Mm. And uh, then elsewhere, they intersected uh, good wide zones of mineralization, up to 66 meters in some cases. So we, we really like that kind of geological environment. And so what we are looking for ultimately is a bulk tonnage uh, style uh, gold plus or minus silver deposit here. Okay, so you are going to have to put out some cash for this stock. Is it cash or stock, or what's the deal? It, it's uh, I think cash. it was two million dollars. Yeah. The figure I saw. Yeah, it's all cash, and 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 uh, to let the cat out of the bag, we've actually been negotiating on this property since April, mm-hmm. and it's a, it was a a situation where we believe. Uh, as in good fences make good neighbors, good contracts make for good agreements. And we uh, are only paying $50,000 on signing, and the next payment is due in one year. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that works out to uh, just a couple of dollars a day for, for a project, which is got a, a unbelievable potential. And then next payment in one year is only 125000 So the payments are really back-end loaded. So it really gives us the ability to put our money into the ground to determine what's there, first and foremost. Okay, well, that makes sense, though. You are a project generator model is what you're employing. Uh, does this change that in any way? Are you looking to, uh, as you said, it's back-end loaded, so you're looking to do some some relatively low-cost work early on to build up the, uh, uh, the value of this property and then possibly get someone else to come in and, and spend some money on it? Or, or what is your well, strategy on this one? This, this project might, might be just the project we've been looking for to, to have uh, a double threat. Mm-hmm. We've been very successful in creating a, a project generator business model, and in our previous conversations we've talked about the merits of the project generator business model. We have many companies now looking at some of our other projects. We anticipate 
um, at least one deal in the coming months. But Teneriva just might be a project we keep to ourselves. It mm-hmm. might be the kind of project and we say, yeah, sorry, this one's not available. We mm-hmm. want to be expending our money. We want our investors to believe that this is 100% Yale and that this has the potential to take Yale to the next level. And we have this perfectly operating business model of project generation on the other side. Mm-hmm. So it could now be a situation where we're creating a, uh, a double threat. Well, I, I, um, I would just say that at six or seven cents, obviously, you need to get the story out and, and tell people why, uh, why this is such an exciting property. And I guess as you do more work, you should have more to tell people about it. And then, and then hopefully something, some of the other properties you have going will have some good, some good news coming out of them as well. Absolutely. And we've got a partner working, uh, doing geophysics and sampling on one project. We're in the process of getting ready to work for another partner on, a, on another uh, of our projects, the Dos Naciones. And now we've got the Tenariba to be advancing to the next stage. So we're going to be really busy over the coming months. Um, so you're, uh, so you're, I think you recently just hired an, an IR person uh, to help you along um, as well with this task, right? Because Absolutely. And one of the most important about, things for say, getting the word out and, and letting people know what Yale Resources is doing. And uh, the more people we talk to, we've been very, very um, pleased with the, with the results and people who are, are now buying into uh, our story, which ultimately means they are buying into the company as well. Uh, Roger, you're there, right? With yes. me here. Okay, Roger, have you uh, taken a look at the Yale chart? I've got it right in front of me now. It closed today at seven cents Canadian. Uh-huh. Uh The 52-week trading range has been between four and 13 cents. Uh, it was up seven and a half percent today on big volume, probably on the announcement that was just mentioned. The volume today was 486,000 shares. Uh, the chart itself. Uh, is showing a continuation triangle. It has been trading in a channel between six and seven cents, as I mentioned, since March. But uh, it appears that uh, the activity, uh, based upon some other chart indicators, uh, are indicating that this thing is probably going to get moving here pretty quick. So uh, do you see a resistance? So, Raj, would you say the resistance here is 13 cents? If they can break through that, they're on, uh, on to much higher prices? A couple of points. On, on, on on mining stocks like these, uh, when you're uh, at a price level where we are between six and seven, uh, resistance is seven cents, but that's where it is. Uh, the next one is eight. The next one is nine. One at ten, and then after that, it breaks out and and goes all the way up to about thirteen on a high. Okay, Ian, could you give us some sense of of the um, the, su- the supply of stock? How tightly held is this? Uh, are, are your shares? Could there well, be a lot of stock coming out between now and thirteen cents? Well, I mean, I guess the, the, the pragmatic approach is there's always going to be sellers, and, and regardless whether you're Gold Corp or you're Yale Resources, there's always going to be someone with the, the need to sell. Um, but we have a uh, diligently been working over the last couple of months to to talk with many people, particularly here in, in the Vancouver area with regards to the story, and, and we're finding that there is an accumulation uh, underway. So with regards to what stock would come available, I mean, obviously there's going to be some people. We've had supporters down at four and a half, five cents. So yeah. maybe 11, 12 cents is a good double, two and a half times for them. So yeah. we, we're always 
open to having our investors sell and make money. So it's a, it's a, unfortunately, I don't know if I have a, 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 tr- a, a concise answer for you with regards to that. Okay, and well, anyway, I, I can tell our listeners that uh, that your your company is one that I've taken a for myself a fairly good position in in my IRA because I, I like your project generator model. Uh, I hope that you stick to that more or less. Uh, I mean, if you've got something extremely exciting that uh, that could really be a company maker, of course, we want to see you max out and maximize the benefit for for myself and other shareholders. But I thank you for coming on, Roger. Don't go. I want uh, Roger. I want to just ask you, what is your take on this market? Now, gold got slammed real hard today. Where do you think, is there much more downside for gold, or, well, or do you think we've pretty much seen it? Gold was down $23 today. The August futures are at 1160 uh, after the close right now. We did project a new base at 1150 some time ago. We said 1207 and then 1150. Uh, the low was 1156.90 today. We think tomorrow it'll probably settle down at around 1150. And we'll see where it goes from there. Stocks right now are in the buy mode generally because the funds are in heavily buying a lot of different things. But uh, there's not been a lot of upside pressure, in my view, considering all the buying. Gold and silver are solid. I mean, I'm not worried about them at all. 1160 at this point could have been sold down a lot further. And gold just refuses <clears throat> refuses to sell. And we've got the same thing really on September futures at 1765. Yeah, I mean, I I honestly believe, and I've been saying in, uh, week after week on this show and in my newsletter as well, that we are in a bull market of a lifetime for gold mining companies. And I think silver would, would fall into that category as well. And the reason is because the real price of gold is rising very dramatically. And that's good because it means senior mining companies are going to have solid profits, and that's going to find its way down the food chain. And we're going to see little companies like Yale Resources trade higher, too, as money comes into the sector and as they make progress on their exploration results. I want to thank both Ian and Roger for being with me. We're out of time. I want to remind you that we'll be back next week, of course, at 3 o'clock as well. And uh, my guest next week is going to be Howard Davidowitz. Howard Davidowitz, who is known uh, throughout America as the Mr. Retailer. He knows retail business better than anyone else. But Howard Davidowitz tells it like it is, and he doesn't say things that the mainstream media necessarily like to hear. He tells the truth, and that's the kind of people we like to have on this show, as at least as, as best we're able to uh, find out what the truth is and to uh, discern what it is. So Howard Davidowitz next week. Don't go away. Uh, be sure that you're with us next week, I should say. Now, I uh, just want to thank the people that make this show logistically possible, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Thank you, all of you, for making this show possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to the show and until next week goodbye and god's blessings to you thank you again for listening to turning hard times into good times with jay taylor please join us again next tuesday at noon pacific time 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel now the thing about time Time isn't really real It's just your point